Hello, Career Cohort. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Emily Wong, founder of Words of Distinction. We talk about tools for achieving career success, inspirational stories about overcoming career and life challenges, and how we can recalibrate our perspective to better enjoy the journey forward. Hello there. My guest today is Ellen Tafe. Ellen is a clinical associate professor at the Kellogg School of Management, where she teaches personal leadership insights and is the director of the Women's Leadership Program. She spent 25 years with Fortune 500 companies holding the top brand management post at divisions of PepsiCo, Royal Caribbean, and Whirlpool. Ellen serves as an independent board director for two public and one private company, runs a leadership advisory, consulting, speaking, and coaching business, and is a TEDx speaker. She shares her insights on leadership, careers, and advancing women and inclusion through her writing and speaking in media like Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Business Insider, and Kellogg Insight. Phew, that is a lot that you're doing. And wait, there's more. Most recently, Ellen wrote the book, The Mirrored Door. Welcome, Ellen. Hello, I'm so glad to be here with you today. I'm so happy you're here. You have a great topic to discuss. And I just want to dig right in. Can you tell us why you wrote The Mirrored Door and explain for our listeners what that means? Sure. So the book is entitled The Mirrored Door, Break Through the Hidden Barrier That Locks Successful Women in Place. And The Mirrored Door is my metaphor to describe this dynamic that many women face where we encounter opportunity, but we think we're not ready or worthy enough to move forward into action. And so often we busy ourselves with other things to sort of get ourselves prepared. And um, it's really quite a distorted view. And I wrote this because I saw it in action. I saw it in my students uh, that I teach at Kellogg School of Management. I learned about it in the research, and I saw it in myself throughout my career too. And um, that really put me on a, on a journey to try to understand more about it. And I realized that it didn't change with new generations and that there's something at play here that was more gendered than generational. And I just want to get the word out. So, so that's, that's why now that that's how I came to it. I really appreciate that you shared your own stories in your book, Ellen. I think that it makes us connect with you more. I think that you're not just telling us this is the way it is. This is what other people are going through, but I, Ellen went through this and when you know, I'm reading this long, wonderful background that you have. And I think people don't expect people at your level to be going through the same challenges and self-talk that the rest of us go through. I still go through it. I mean, coming <laughs> yeah. out with a book and then marketing it is opening the mirror door on a pretty constant basis. So I think it's, it's just much more common than we realize. I wrote this article for Kellogg Insight. I think it was called something like Three Tips for Managing Self-Doubt at Work. And it got picked up by other um, publications. 
And I started to get some emails from people and LinkedIn messages because it, it was a pick of the week kind of article from people who were CEOs or all different kinds of levels feeling like I have this self-doubt, you know, every day. And so, so it's also very common in high achieving people too, like those in your audience that are striving for more in their career. And when we stretch into something new or aspire for something more, that's when a lot of times that self-doubt or, or thinking that we're not ready comes out. And I think it's particularly true for women. I love that CEOs and other leaders got in touch with you because you gave them permission to see this and to share it. And I think we try to cover that up sometimes. And uh, I think that's wonderful. That must make you feel really good about what you're doing. You just, you have a real purpose here, Ellen. It's wonderful. I do. I, I feel like we think we're alone when we're experiencing this. And the opposite is true. It, it's really quite common. And even though something like imposter syndrome, I think it's kind of in the vernacular now, it's used all the time. The challenge, I guess, that I'm putting out there is that we really have to take a look at our realistic readiness and understand that if we are holding back, we aren't getting the growth. The growth is on the other side of the mirror door. Mm -hmm. It's really not in all the, I need to take another class or, you know, <laughs> I need to do four more hours on the presentation and moving into things when we're not 100% certain, or we have some imperfection is how we're going to learn. We're going to, we're going to learn to win or lose and pick ourselves back up again. Right. I, I like the way you're talking about it. if I, if I take that class, if I get that next degree, then I'll be ready. Right. I want to say too, I, I really like, I mean, we hear about the glass ceiling all the time, but the difference between the glass ceiling and the mirrored door that I feel after reading your book and hearing you speak is that with the glass ceiling, there's that feeling that something's on, imposed on us and we don't necessarily have any control over that. With the mirrored door, I feel like we have agency over what we do over whether or not we go through that door. So I'm really excited. I know that you have, I think there are five uh, strategies that you talk about, and I, I really wanna dig into those. Those are the strategies that we use early in our career and that might work for a while and then stop serving us. So I was wondering if you could go through those five. Absolutely. So um, they are preparing to perfection, eagerly pleasing, fitting the mold, working pedal to the metal, and performing patiently, awaiting to be noticed. And in each one of them, they do drive our success, but they can also sideline us, both internally with the impact, as well as externally with the perception that others have of us. And so there's a real opportunity to pivot. I love how you talked about, like, we have our own agency. I mean, certainly there are obstacles or biases or, or just outdated workplaces that get in our way, but we might also be getting in our own way too. So I'm happy to go through them if you would like. I would love that. Okay. Um, so preparing to perfection is, you know, we want people on the team that do this 
they you know deliver excellence, accuracy, being on time, can generally handle a lot of work, and they get there so frequently with a lot of, they deliver that perfection with a lot of preparation and get a lot of the, you know, attaboys, girls get really acknowledged and they're the go-to people for many on the team. What happens is it becomes part of our identity in particular that we know we can do it because we can spend all that time preparing and ensure perfection. The, the reality is that the search for perfection is a losing game and you know we can never always be perfect. And what happens is as expectations rise in our careers, our plates get fuller, we have less time to move forward and make decisions uh, and, and take risks. We need to basically move forward with less information than they once had. And that can be really stressful for someone who is a perfectionist or really relies on that preparation as a, as a crutch. So it's internally stressful. And what can happen to us, the, the surprise after all this great work is that we can be seen as the worker bee that you want on the team, but not the person to lead the team. Because to lead the team, we need to be decisive. We need to take risks. We need to learn how to delegate. And so often a perfectionist delegates in a way that can be a micromanager too. So the, the pivot here, uh, one of them is to ask for help, is to work with your manager to differentiate what are the parts of my job or my projects that I need to deliver A plus, put my A plus energy, that more perfectionistic side, more preparation, and where can I come in with a draft? And, and that might feel really uncomfortable for someone who likes to, you know, show something with all, you know, tied up with in a bow. And, and so one of the best things is to deliver something that's like more draft form or, or something that let letting go of your perfectionism in small ways, in lower risk situations, so that you can build that muscle and deliver the excellence, but focus more on the progress versus everything has to be perfect. I love that advice, especially when you say the small risks, because I think you mentioned this too, that it could be such a part of somebody's identity and oh no, I'm letting go of that. And in your book, I know you talk about most valedictorians, I believe are women, right? 70%. So we we learn that in school that we're going to get an A plus if we are absolutely perfect. And I think that is encouraged to a certain extent. And I noticed my sons would push back on that. Like, why do I need to do this? This is busy work. And I'd say, well, because your teacher wants that, right? But at the same time, now I, I, I happen to have two boys. I didn't have young women um, but I'm sure they would have questioned that too. And it's too bad that we have to strive for that because really the, the most efficient people and the people who get things done are those people who focus on the 20% that really does matter, right? So again, I, I really like your solution that to, to actually talk to your supervisor or your manager or, or whoever you're reporting to, to find out where you can let go of that. I, I think that's wonderful, wonderful advice. 
Okay, number two. So number two is eagerly pleasing. And um, these are excellent people, uh, leaders. They, they are many times the glue that holds the team together. They can read other people and therefore be able to motivate them and, and can be very influential too. They also keep the peace because they, they observe what's happening. And so lots of wonderful things. The, the risk is with this one is that you can be so other oriented that you forget about your own needs or points of view or, or interests. And so what, what can happen is underneath it all, if you're always going in the direction or it's always about other people, you can feel like, what about me? And almost like an underlying anger of um, it's always about other people. It also can be very stressful because of that other orientation. We can find ourselves holding back because we don't want to disappoint or have someone mad at us, or we can ruminate over a discussion or something that we didn't say or did say. Uh, so so there's, there's an internal stress with this. And the perceptual risk is that this, this uh, tendency can be seen as being too soft. The question becomes, can this person make the tough decisions? Can they face conflict? And that's part of leadership, being able to do that. And so the, the, the pivot here, you know, if this tendency resonates, is to seek respect over likability and um, to tap into the likely care that you have for other people to try to reframe that, to take, you know, to think of, I care about other people, therefore I'm going to be honest about the feedback that I need to give them, or I care about the team or the organization, and therefore I'm going to raise these issues that are going to hurt us in the long run. I have, you know, a framework for boundary setting, which is a key thing um, in this book. And it's, it's a way to build that muscle of clarifying the issue, connecting with the other person, leveraging that strength that this tendency brings, and then collaborating on what solution they will do once you set the boundary. But so often when we say no, we don't realize no is a complete sentence or we say we can't take something on because this, 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 and that, and this, this, instead of just saying, I can't take this on, happy to recommend someone else that might be able to do this, or what could come off my plate if you feel like this is a, a bigger priority for me. So boundary setting and recognizing that it is better to be respected than liked in our careers is really an important part of this. Yeah, I think that boundary setting is really important and I'm learning it too, going back to that 80-20 principle by Richard Koch. Well, I, it precedes him, but he did write the book and I'm pretty good at time management, but I'm not good at energy management. And I'm really, really, really focused on that right now. So as you talk about this, I'm thinking about it. Yes. And you can say it and you can say no with a smile, right? Um, and so I, I think that's really, really helpful. Uh, the next one, what was number three? 
The next one is fitting the mold. And this is someone who is really adept at reading the culture and seeing what works in this culture. And, and it, it helps someone to hit the ground running and fit. And, you know, there, there's a real agility in this skill too, or this behavior, I should say. The, the risk comes with if we feel like we haven't shown our real self. And over time, not only does the company, you know, or team lose out from understanding real points of view or, or the natural, you know, diverse thinking that different people bring to it, but one can feel like, did they hire the real me if I'm not really showing it? And, and so in more time, there is a, a greater risk of, of stress of thinking like, do I deserve this seat at the table? So the mirror door becomes this reflection back on now I'm here six months. And if I show more of myself, like, will it work? Will I fit in here? And the, the real pivot in this one is to figure out what matters to you and, and what's important, because the more likely that we can show more of ourselves in an effective way, um, the more likely we can do that, the more engaged we are, the more we can really make a unique contribution here too. So we, we have to stop the pretense in some ways, but we also have to figure out what are we up for? So your listeners can't tell that I'm wearing red. And I do that on a lot of my interviews because so often in my early career, I was told not to wear red. I was told to wear navy. Now, I'm much older than lots of people that might be listening, and maybe that's an outdated kind of thing, but there are other aspects that people are trying to navigate and figure out, can I come out at work? Or I, I have a, mm -hmm. a former student who interned at a company, um, a black woman, and she got the offer she wanted to go, and one of the things she talked to me about was, do you think I can wear my, my natural hair? I didn't see anyone this summer doing that, but like, I want to be me. It was really important to her. And she has to think through, like we all have to think through if, if me being my um, authentic self is not the mold I have seen, am I up for expanding or breaking the mold or do I want to find that elsewhere? But it is, if we're constantly fitting something that doesn't feel natural or real to us. Um, and it, it can be a visible thing like I've described, or it can be, I was in one organization where the way you got things done or influenced was like pound your fist on the table and be very aggressive. Totally not my style. I am more yeah. of a quiet thinker. Mm -hmm. And even doing that was like very performative. I couldn't really do it. And so the question for me was, could I be effective there? So it can be a lot of different things, whether they're visible or invisible, that we um, and many people are, are thinking through, can I reveal? And, and when you feel like hidden, it, it can be very stressful. And the organization suffers from not really getting the real you. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder if it's better to make sure you're showing up day one in that interview and if it's not a good fit, it, it's better to find out at that point than later on. And you and I come with a few more years and wisdom 
but that's something I absolutely would have told my younger self. Uh, somebody posted today about someone who was at, in the C-suite and was serving as a chameleon across all different groups. And at that level, I, I was very surprised to hear that, but feeling that like, I just felt so weighed down just reading that article, you know? Um, and it's very freeing to just say, okay, this is who I am. This is who I'm gonna be. And then, you know, if, if it's not a good fit, then we don't need to take it personally. I know it's easier to say that than to actually do it, but I think that's a really good point. And then speaking up, I remember being in rooms with a lot of people and, you know, it's like the telltale heart. I could feel my heart beating and I could hear it, right? And I wondered if everybody else in the room could hear it. And then I would think these ideas and I would be so nervous and I wouldn't say them, but I knew there were good ideas because somebody else would say those things. They would come up with those ideas and everybody thought they, would want, they were wonderful. And so that's the other thing is to speak up because I think if we take ourselves out of it, just say, what is going to help the organization? So if I speak up, it's going to help the organization. I love that. Right. Yeah. And I think that the best organizations and leaders are really looking at expanding or breaking the old mold of the past. And it's sometimes it's hard to tell on an interview. Um, it's hard to tell with, you know, the the glossy brochures or websites or you know, value signs in the lobby or all those kinds of things. So the more we can also talk to people, ask everyone you interview on the team about the culture, talk to ex-employees to really understand too, is this a place that I can be authentically myself and thrive? Mm -hmm. But it's a challenging one. And so often if you are part of a group that is not the majority, it's harder and you, you feel more under the spotlight, you know, for yourself, but you might truly be more under the spotlight as well. Yeah, that's a great point. Let's go to number four. Yeah. So four is working pedal to the metal. And this is that take charge, high capacity person, works tirelessly, gets things done, very results goal oriented. So you know, this is the person you want on that really tough to do, you know, project or new product launch that, you know, is behind schedule. And so the challenge with this one is that many times that take charge behavior and that ability to work tirelessly puts us ahead of our team. And there is a gap. It also has a personal burnout factor too. And so the thing we need to do here is to pause, pause to reconnect with our team. And so often for women who are that take charge type, they can face more bias because men and women expect other women to, to show up with more warmth up front. And so this is the one that has faces the most bias as far as the expectations of, of what others think of when they expect to work with a woman or be led by a woman. And so what's really important is to be that take charge person, but don't skip checking in with your team, sharing who you are and your motivations. I am all about pushing hard on this project because I want us to win. And I know this is going to put our company on the map 
or, or whatever that is that's driving you. It helps others to understand your motivations. And there's also a pause to reconnect with yourself. This is also an opportunity to delegate, to give others the opportunity to work hard and to develop and to take on more. Um, this is, this is, I've coached many women who are in this mode. They're working so hard that they, after the big project, frequently get sick. So there is a take care of yourself need in this one too. And for managers who see this too, other people need to call out when there's a biased reaction to a woman who's really in that take charge kind of mode as well. So that's working pedal to the metal. If you can take your foot off the gas a little bit and look around, and you touched on this too, Ellen, to see who else you can bring into that because you're elevating other people by delegating the work to them and not feeling like this is only going to get done and meet the deadline if I do it, <laughs> right? So you're giving opportunities to other people. So maybe that's the way to look at it. Yeah, I love that. And and I think it's, it's part of your responsibility to develop others too. Yes. Uh, so there's, there's a real opportunity also to get team input to sort of know, are you way ahead of them? And you really want to operate like a team not not with great distance from your team. You know, I wanted to point out because I know, Ellen, your philosophy is that you were able to come to that balance of being a respected leader and also being kind and caring to your team. And I will tell you that my favorite leader of all time at a company, she was very high up and eventually was in the C-suite of another pretty impressive company, she was very caring. And there was never a question in anybody's mind that she meant business, but she, she was always kind. And I wanna emphasize that because you're an example of it, she's an example of it. We can still be good people and kind while we're steering a company. And I definitely think it's a balance, but it can be done. And I think that's the leader of the future, men or women. <laughs> I completely agree. I sign my books and my newsletter sign off is take care and take charge. And I think the old workplace was all about take charge, you know, command yeah. and control. Uh -huh. And now there's just much more need for compassion and collaboration. But there's times where we need to take charge. There's a yes. crisis here. And so I think that we need to do both. And some of these behaviors might line up more on the take care side. I mean, I think that was sort of my, my lead, but I learned to tap into that to also take charge and right. that's developing other people. That's being honest about what we're really facing right. as, as a team too. So, and I completely agree with you. This is what people want in their leaders as well. Yeah. Should, should I hit my, the last one? Yeah, sure. So the last one is performing patiently. And this is uh, someone who works really hard, understands that the boss has some things that they're dealing with before they can get you promoted. But what we miss is that all of our good work and what we want is not generally noticed if we don't share it. And the squeaky wheel gets the grease. So there's lots of people out there 
looking for promotion and communicating that all the time. And so this, this comes up a lot for women. It also comes up in some cultures where the idea of self-promotion feels really awful. And, you know, the mirror door that comes up is this, I don't want to be a braggart or I don't want to be seen as greedy or these things, these, these messages that become our beliefs that hold us back from communicating, here's what I've accomplished, here's where I'd like to go in my career, and, and getting into courageous conversations where you can learn about, given what you want in your career, how are you perceived? What, what is the gap that you need to close? And how can you line up projects or experiences that help you to do that too? So I have a framework in the book about how to prepare for and go in and have a conversation where we are sending a strong signal of what's important to us and what we've accomplished. But one of the biggest things with this is we have to really change that mindset from self-promotion to just understanding the way it works. It's collaborative career planning and our managers are tasked with that too. So it's helpful for them to know what we want and to be armed with, here's what this person has accomplished as well. Uh, but what we live with this myth of like, they're going to notice all my hard work. I had to learn this early in my career. The other big mistake is waiting until your performance review that's when they're actually telling you if you're getting promoted or your raise, you, you can't go in at that time. It has to be before that. So you raise a really good point there. Yeah, we, we think, oh, yeah, she knows or he knows what I'm doing all the time. But that's not not the case. Absolutely. So we, you know, again, small steps and, and also I think reflecting on what messages we received, like I did receive from my mom, like, don't be a braggart. And that gave me a lot of humility, which I think is actually key to my leadership, but not so much humility that, you know, I really had to learn that if I don't speak up about myself, that I may not get to some of the things that I really wanted to. And we can also be perceived as less ambitious mm -hmm. when those around us are, you know, shouting to the rooftops to the manager <laughs> about what they want in their career. Right. I mean, I have people who are high up in their careers and will say, do I really need to list these awards? True story. And you better believe you better list those awards. And I try to help them by saying, you know, with your resume, you really want to brag because even though the understood pronoun is the first person, you don't use pronouns in your resume. So you can really go full out. And there are ways to be humble on LinkedIn while still sharing your wonderful achievements. And it's really, really important to do that because that's what LinkedIn is for. That's what the space is for. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you too, is um, kind of winding down here, what are some ways that we can enlist others to help us? I think by sharing what we are working on, like I'm working on trying to speak up more in a meeting. Can you 
help prompt me or can you give me feedback when I do speak up? So sharing what you're working on and asking for help, asking for support, I think can be really effective. And looking for those allies around you who can, you know, in my class, we, we uh, call getting feedback from loving critics. So people who've seen you in action, but care enough about you to, to tell you what they see. Um, and I think getting feedback is really important. So asking powerful questions. So when you do get feedback, you could say, if I was more confident, what would that look like? So getting good at asking questions that help you get past what sometimes are the vague buzzwords that come out in feedback discussions. Right. And like a communicator, uh, you need to improve your communication skills. What does that look like? I love that. I, I love the way that you promote this idea that there are people in your circle who can help you and want to help you. Uh, how many times have we been in a situation, if, if somebody doesn't ask for my advice on something and it's not related to what I do and they didn't hire me, I may not give them feedback, but I might be thinking this could be something, here's an opportunity, but I'm not going to say it. But if somebody asks me to give them that support, I would love to do that. Yeah, and I certainly- are more willing to help than, than we realize. Yes. But we have to ask. I need to do that more too, for sure. <laughs> Don't we all? Oh, yes. Ellen, I could talk to you on and on. And I'd love to, I, sincerely, I'd love to have you back on another program because I there was a lot we didn't touch on. But before we go, is there one more piece of advice that we didn't talk about that you'd like to share? I would share that in a world that is striving to be more confident, and sometimes getting feedback about that, what we really need is to tap into our courage. That courage is the prerequisite to take action and confidence is the result, it's the outcome. When we try something with uncertainty or try something that's a little risky and we survive, whether that's with a win or maybe we stumble and we get back up and we'll be stronger next time. And that builds our confidence. But, but courage, it's tap into the courage. And likely if I asked each of your listeners, name three times when you showed courage, I bet they could come up with a, a longer list than that. So we have more courage than we realize. Well, you're giving me an assignment too. I'm going to write down three things that I'm afraid to do. And then I'm going to push through those things and they may be small. They can be small too, right? They can be something that takes courage, but is low risk, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, I love that. I think that's a great note to end on. And can you tell our listeners, I'm going to include this in the show notes too, Ellen, but can you let people know how you can, they can reach you, find your book? Sure. So um, my website is ellentafe.com. T double A double F E. And I have an email newsletter. I'm very active on LinkedIn. I also have a LinkedIn newsletter and um, the book, the mirror door breakthrough, the hidden barrier that locks successful women in place is available where books are sold. So thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. Likewise, Ellen. Yeah. It was great to talk to you too. Thank you so much, Emily. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Career Cohort. I'm Emily Wong. You can find all my podcasts and blog posts at wordsofdistinction.net. And if you'd like to chat about how I can help you define the next step in your career and achieve your goals, head on over to the same website and book a time on my calendar for a free consult. In the meantime, please be sure to share, subscribe, rate, and review so we can continue to bring you great content. Thank you.